welcome back, everybody. Another episode of You Make Me Sick. I uh, just wanted to thank everybody, uh, new listeners. It seems like there were a lot of you from my last podcast on syphilis. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you very much. Feel free to subscribe if you want. If not, just keep listening. Uh, as always, uh, welcome feedback. Uh, you can always email me. So uh, you make me sick pod at gmail.com. Uh, suggestions, any kind of critiques or recommendations, uh, feel free to let me know. Uh, before we get started with today's podcast uh, about brain-eating amoebas, we'll do a little monkeypox update. Uh, been about a month or so since my last podcast, uh, and uh, just kind of give you a quick rundown. Monkeypox has actually died down a little bit in the news. Uh, definitely not as prevalent as it was about a month ago. The U.S. did see its first death last week in Texas. Uh, happened to be an uh, immunocompromised, severely immunocompromised man. Uh, didn't really release a lot of details from that, but uh, it is still a deadly virus. It can cause death. Um, there haven't been a lot of them since this outbreak, and I'll actually run down the numbers in just a minute of where we're at with that. Uh, but it is, you know, it is still something that uh, can cause death occasionally. But it hasn't been, especially this strain, uh, exceptionally high with the, the mortality rate anyway. Uh, as of today, we are, uh, what are we right now, September 6th, uh, 19,465 monkeypox cases in the U.S. Uh, worldwide, there are 53,027 cases. Uh, since the beginning of this outbreak that they've had, uh, there have only been 15 deaths reported, and uh, only six of those have actually come in areas where monkeypox wasn't endemic before, so essentially outside of Africa. Uh, as I said, that one U.S. death in Texas is the only one reported in the U.S. so far. So uh, all the monkeypox hype that you heard about a month ago, um, you know, it's uh, definitely, the, uh, it was a little bit overblown when they first started coming out with that, but that's how our news works. It's ridiculous. Uh, there's actually good signs that it's slowing, too. So uh, in the United States, the doubling time from the outbreak, uh, it used to be... Uh, eight days back in July, and now it's down to 25 days, which means the virus is slowing. Uh, in the UK as well, it's come down quite a bit as well. The UK uh, health authorities said that the decline in the UK, um, pretty much behavioral changes, uh, proper diagnosis, and uh, also kind of a saturation of the risk population. So there's only so many people. It's The high-risk population still remains men who sleep with men. Uh, over 98% of cases are happening in that community. Uh, but after a while, the virus will kind of, if it's going to run through that community, uh, for those who aren't either getting vaccinated or seeking protection, it, it will eventually uh, run out of hosts. So the, the UK is contributing that to part of their decline and slowdown. Here in the U.S., vaccines uh, still being administered. I know that New York uh, is now giving second doses of the vaccine. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if other areas, Massachusetts included where I live, uh, became one of those states that did that as well. Uh, but it is slowing, so it's, it's another reason why you're really not hearing a lot about it in the news today. Um, men still make up 98% of the cases as well. Uh, there have only been 164 cases reported in women. And I think a lot of those are probably close contacts with men. So, um, But still, you know, it, it's one of those things that isn't going to go away completely. So if you are part of that at-risk population, make sure to, uh, you know, uh, you can get a vaccination or just be safe in general more than anything else. So 
That'll do it for our monkeypox update. Uh, so uh, now let's move on. Uh, Negleria fowleri. So Negleria fowleri is known as the brain-eating amoeba. Uh, you might have heard about it uh, every summer or so, uh, especially towards the end of the summer. You'll see news stories uh, where this pops up, maybe one or two a year. It's extremely rare, but has a, an extremely high mortality rate. A uh, little over 97% mortality rate. So if you do end up getting this amoeba, you're probably going to die. Uh, that being said, I'll kind of get into the specifics of it, uh, where you can get it, all that fun stuff. So uh, Negleria fowleri, it's actually a member of the genus Percoloza, Percolozoa. Ooh, it's a tough one. Uh, and it's called the brain-eating amoeba, um, mainly because of, from where it enters and because of where it actually kind of attacks the body. Uh, so amoebas, kind of weird little uh, eukaryotes, which are, you know, if a eukaryote's kind of a highly organized, can be either one cell or multiple cells. Uh, most amoebas are just unicellular. Um, but uh, like animals, plants, those are all considered eukaryotes, uh, different from a prokaryote, uh, which is like a single basic cell organism, um, bacteria, essentially are prokaryotes. Uh, they don't have the multiple cell configurations that uh, eukaryotes have. Uh, it was named after Malcolm Fowler, who actually described uh, initial cases of uh, an amoebic encephalitis. They actually call it PAM, PAM, for primary amoebic encephalitis. Uh, and this was actually in Australia, this gentleman Malcolm Fowler uh, is from there. So. He got to name it, so uh, N. Fowleri is now kind of what it's designated at. Going forward, because I'm just going to botch saying Negleria over and over again, uh, I will just call it N. Fowleri. Uh, so it's an amoeba. So as I said, amoebas, they're single-cell organisms. They can be multicellular, uh, but they have the ability to kind of alter their shape. Uh, they actually have these things called pseudopods, and they extend or retract these pseudopods to move around. Uh, they're kind of blob, if you can picture kind of a blobular looking thing, just kind of kind of slugging around. Um, they don't have like a single taxonomic group, um, so you can't really put them in one area. They're kind of found in every major eukaryotic lineage, uh, so it's not really easy to classify them in their own group. Um, amoeboid cells, uh, they occur, you know, in, in protozoa, but also in fungus, in algae, and in animals as well. So you can find amoebas just about anywhere uh, in the animal kingdom. Um, amoebas typically are actually, they help to destroy bacteria, they destroy fungus and mold. They actually usually will kind of eat it, uh, and that's what they use for their energy. And usually aren't that uh, toxic and aren't uh, considered a microorganism that would be dangerous to humans, uh, with the exception of, uh, there's a few of them, if you ever heard of amoebic dysentery, uh, which is another nasty little amoeba, maybe I'll do that one at some point. But uh, Enfaliri, uh, which we're talking about today, is one that uh, will definitely cause, like I said, probably kill you if you get it. Uh, Enfaliri, so where can you find this stuff? So it's everywhere. Uh, it's usually in freshwater lakes, you can find it in hot water springs, uh, if you have a pool that's poorly chlorinated, uh, or if you have like thermally polluted um, bodies of water, then there's a good chance that Enfaliri will actually be living there. Uh, it's never been found in seawater, only found in fresh water, uh, and uh, like I said, just really like thermal springs. 
Uh, and it's usually contaminated within the soil that rests at the bottom, and then the soil, obviously, if it gets kicked up, moved around for whatever reason, um, ends up contaminating the water around it. Uh, it is thermophilic, so it loves hot temperatures, grows really well, um, and it can live in temperatures as high as 113 degrees Fahrenheit, which is why these hot springs uh, are often a host for it. Uh, it does have three stages in its life cycle. So it has a, a cyst stage, it has a trophozoite stage, and a flagellate stage. So these stages, uh, they're kind of important uh, to how this amoeba, amoeba is able to survive. So the uh, trophozoite stage, this is where it reproduces, uh, and this is where it can actually cause disease in humans. This is where it enters the body. When the amoeba is in environments that aren't uh, amenable to growth, so if it's uh, an environment with low food sources, uh, it doesn't feel like it can survive, this is when the trophozoite can actually temporarily change into a flagellate form. Uh, and then once a flagellate form has found enough either food sources or it feels like it's actually able to promote growth, it reverts back to the trophozoite stage. So with the cyst stage, uh, cyst stage is actually a reaction to any kind of environmental stresses. So we're talking uh, extreme heat or extreme cold. So cysts can actually withstand extremes ranging from anywhere from about uh, 149 degrees Fahrenheit down to close to freezing. Um, apparently, though, these amoebas will not survive in freezing temperatures. So... Uh, Winter time, you're probably not going to be seeing, well, I guess, unless you're doing a lot of spa or uh, neti potting. Uh, probably won't see a lot of cases of Enfeliri. Um, so the trophozoite form, which is the form that we'll actually talk about here, uh, this is where it's actually able to become pathogenic and enter the body. Uh, it typically feeds on bacteria and fungus in warm waters. It does appear that in winter time or in cooler weather, uh, the amoeba, this is when it'll actually insist itself, kind of create that cyst form, and will remain in the bottom of these lakes and ponds uh, just to survive the winters. Uh, you don't see a lot of cases in the north. Most of the cases, at least in the United States, are actually in the southern part of the U.S. Uh, so how do you get this stuff? How does it get into your body? So um, typical route of ingestion is usually through the nasal cavity, uh, the nasal passages. Uh, individuals who are swimming, uh, freshwater lakes, uh, or like I said, neti potting is another way that uh, they've kind of traced cases to. Um, but typically it's with swimming or bathing in freshwater sources. Uh, once nasal inoculation happens, usually you dump, jump in, dive in, water gets up the nose. It's happened to probably all of us. Um, the amoeba is actually able to penetrate the respiratory epithelium, so the skin, kind of the inner cells around the the nose tissues inside, and it gets into the olfactory mucosa. Uh, it then migrates up in through this thing called the cribriform plate. Uh, the cribriform plate, it's part of the skull. You have a bone in your nose called the ethmoid bone. It's actually, it's typically at the basic, the, the, normally the base of the skull. And it's actually able to permeate through uh, that cribriform plate and that ethmoid bone into your central nervous system and infect the brain. Once it's in there, it actually causes extensive cortical hemorrhages. Uh, it causes tissue necrosis, so it kills the tissue around it. This, in turn, causes inflammation, swelling, uh, what we call edema, and this happens in the brain tissue. And when this stuff starts to happen, uh, it's never good. Um, the olfactory bulbs, so these are the things that kind of help you smell. Um, part of uh, your frontal cerebellum, 
uh, and part of the frontal cerebri all tend to be uh, the most severely affected by this. So obviously anything that's close to, you know, where your nose connects to your brain. Uh, once Enfield Leary reaches the olfactory bulbs, uh, it actually, the body puts out a significant immune response through the activation um, just of our innate immune systems. Uh, this will send the macrophages, neutrophils, all those great white blood cells that on any other occasion would be really beneficial, but in this case just causes a lot of swelling uh, and that causes that buildup of fluid in and around the brain. Um, and the brain's encapsulated, so the brain doesn't have a lot of room to grow or uh, to expand. So when that starts to happen, you start seeing a lot of issues with uh, just your central nervous system in general. So specifically what causes the damage to your brain tissue, uh, there's this destruction by this thing called a food cup. So structures on the surface of the trophozyte amoeba, uh, these things are called food cups. What these things do normally is they'll ingest bacteria or fungus, uh, and in this case, it's human tissue. Um, once that food cup gets in there, starts to dissolve these tissues and break them down, obviously breakdown of human tissue or brain tissue is going to cause uh, a lot of damage, um, more swelling. Uh, it's actually the swelling from the immune response that your body puts out, plus what these food cups are doing by the release of these uh, cytolytic molecules that break down all these tissues that start to really cause trouble for the brain. Uh, and that's what causes that cell necrosis and all that tissue death and brain death. And it's also, it's why they call it the brain-eating amoeba, because it's literally taking these quote-unquote food cups where it dissolves uh, its usual food sources, the bacteria or the mold or fungus, whatever it's eating. Uh, but in this case, it's eating your brain. So uh, the significant nerve damage that results from that uh, is what causes most of these central nervous uh, system and uh, just kind of brain, like loss of brain function and uh, like hemorrhaging as well. Um, so what are the symptoms of this? So let's say it's a beautiful summer day, you go swimming, you're down in, I don't know, Mississippi. Uh, you know, maybe uh, a week later, you start to feel uh, you got a headache, starting to feel fever, chills. You get all these signs of uh, what would normally be found in meningitis. So meningitis obviously affects the meninges, so it's kind of a, around your spinal cord. Uh, clinically, there are a couple of different uh, signs or tests that we can do um, to see if people might be or might have or be positive for meningitis. One's called uh, Brudzinski sign. And this is where your neck is so severe just from the swelling and the, the inflammation. Um, that when you try to actually bend your patient's hips and knee, the knees tend to flex when the neck is flexed. So it's kind of strange. I, it's hard for me to explain uh, with a podcast. If you're, if you're curious, look it up. There's actually, you can find on YouTube, um, Brudzinski's, B-R-U-D-Z-I-N-S-K-I, Brudzinski sign. And there's also something called Keurig sign. Um, and that's where stiffness of your hamstrings actually causes the inability for you to straighten your leg out when the hips flexed at 90 degrees. That's another one hard to describe on a podcast, but uh, if you look that up as well, Koenig, K-E-R-N-I-G, Koenig sign, look that up on the internet. You can kind of, uh, or on YouTube. Um, but if these are positive, both of them, then uh, it's indication that this person might have some kind of uh, a meningitis happening. Um, there's also symptoms of photophobia, confusion, seizures, it could be in a coma. So, I mean, it, you know, when your brain gets affected, you could have just a constellation of symptoms. Um, usually takes about two to eight days uh, 
before you're actually fully infected by it. There have been some people that have reported within 24 hours of having symptoms. Uh, probably depends on the amount of the amoeba ingested, how quickly it's actually able to get to the brain. Uh, there have been cardiac rhythm abnormalities, uh, as well as myocardial necrosis in some cases. So I don't know if somehow the amoeba is able to actually migrate into your bloodstream. I, I don't know how it would get to the heart, but apparently there have been some uh, cases that have mentioned that. But the most important aspect of this is just the intracranial pressure uh, and the uh, cerebral spinal fluid pressure that increase with the swelling of the brain. I think there were some reported cases where the intracranial pressure was uh, 600 millimeters of mercury. Uh, normally, you'd see between 5 and 15, I think, millimeters of mercury for, you know, intracranial pressures uh, in an adult. So that's absolutely insane that there's just that much swelling that happens. So uh, how is it diagnosed? Good question. So uh, MRIs. So you can get an MRI. Um, it'll definitely show the swelling. It'll show the abnormalities in the various regions of the brain, uh, including the midbrain and those uh, subarachnoid spaces. Uh, and then CFS is actually, you get a spinal tap, and uh, you can use that to diagnose uh, and Fowleri. Uh, it may show some abnormalities in color. Uh, it may be gray. It's usually clear. There may be some gray in the early stages to kind of red in late stages, which is just showing uh, red blood cells that have been involved. Um, there's also increases just in your polymorphonuclear cell concentrations, uh, as well as the presence of these amoebas. Like, they can sometimes actually find them in the CSF. So, uh, if you get it, like I said, about a 97% mortality rate, uh, what do you do to treat it? So, uh, due to the rarity of this, you know, there aren't really clinical trials that can happen. Drug companies aren't interested in creating drugs to treat it because there's no profit for them. Uh, the only, the I guess, the, the gold standard... Um, right now is actually amphotericin B. So uh, in the medical field, we call this amphoterrible. Uh, it's an incredibly effective, highly potent antibiotic. Uh, it kills everything, including your kidneys. So uh, it's a reason why it's not used widely. Uh, it's used in really, uh, you know, severe cases where nothing else is able to treat what's, uh, what's ailing you. Um, when I was a burn nurse, we would see mold infections occasionally, uh, especially a, there's a mold called mucor, uh, and it's nasty, very, very difficult to kill. Uh, amphotericin is about the only thing that kills it. And every patient that we treated with amphotericin, they also wound up with kidney injuries. Um, thankfully, uh, I think three or four times that I saw that we used it, the patients all survived and they actually, their kidneys did recover, but it can fry kidneys completely. And uh, unfortunately, especially with molds, because it takes so long to kill them, it's usually a long course with this drug and it can be given, you know, they, they give it a pretty high concentration sometimes. Uh, so amphotericin B is just kind of right now the only treatment. Um, there is another antifungal called miltefazine. There have been a couple of cases where they used this and it was marginally successful, but there just haven't been, there, there wasn't enough data to really support continuing to use it. Um, there are also other anti-infectives which will be given, uh, you know, with the amphotericin, typically fluconazole, uh, myconazole, uh, azithromycin, or azithromycin, hmm. azithromycin, and rifampin, which are a couple more antibiotics, can be given 
and there have been some uh, kind of anecdotal uh, evidence that those help as well. But amphotericin B, um, like I said, which is a, a brutal antibiotic, uh, is often given uh, to treat Enfaleri, and unsuccessfully in most cases. Um, you know, there's been limited data even from surviving cases, so it, it, it's hard to say if, you know, the, how effective the amphotericin actually was. Uh, so the amphotericin B, so it can be given, uh, it's given IV, uh, or it can be given uh, intrathecally, which means you can actually put it in between the spaces, kind of the layers, the spaces of the tissue that cover the spinal cord, uh, which is also dangerous because anytime you enter the spinal cord with any kind of needle, uh, you're also kind of compromising the spinal cord itself. As far as prevention, what can we do? Well, there's not a lot. I mean, if you're going to be out swimming around uh, in lakes, ponds, fresh water, if you're going to be at a, a nasty hotel and use their hot tub or spa, uh, avoid jumping in. You can use a nose clip. Try not to splash. Try not to get water up your nose. Easier said than done a lot of the times. Still, you know, this is extremely rare. This isn't something that happens a lot. Um, usually, like I said, there'll be a couple of cases a year. Uh, and it's typically found in the U.S., freshwater places down south. I think Florida and Texas uh, are the two states with the largest number of these cases over the course of the last 60 years or so uh, since it's been, well, not diagnosed, but actually you know, named and uh, been able to be diagnosed. So uh, also neti potting for all you people that like to do neti potting. I don't know why, but you do. Um, always use sterile water uh, or uh, purified water. Don't ever use just water you find, fresh water, even tap water. It could, uh, you know, be contaminated. And that's a great way for uh, an amoeba to get into your brain is just to suck it up through your nose while, while practicing neti potting. Um, other than that, not a lot of prevention for it. So... Uh, also, anybody, if you do any sinus rinsing for whatever reason, also always use purified water or distilled water for that. Uh, and that's a recommendation from our friends at the CDC. Epidemiologically, uh, where is this stuff located? Uh, so infections have actually been reported in Australia. That's where it was originally identified. Uh, New Zealand, Europe, Africa, Asia, Latin America, the U.S. This stuff is everywhere. Uh, in the U.S., like I said, southern states are the ones that are mostly or predominantly found there. Uh, there have been a couple of cases, though, uh, in Connecticut and Minnesota, so two northern states, where it's been isolated from thermally polluted waters. So, it, like I said, it's thermophilic, so it loves warm water or even hot water. Uh, in the United States, so just to talk about the rarity of it now, from 1962 uh, until this year, or actually I should say last year, 2021 is when these statistics uh, were updated, uh, there have only been 154 infections. Um, it should be noted that of those 154 infections, there have only been four survivors. So not an extremely great mortality rate, like I said, about 97%. Uh, it might even be it might even be higher than that. Than that. There have been two cases this year as well. So, uh, in the U.S., like I said, southern states, Texas, Florida, uh, have had almost half of the infections occurring there. Uh, it also disproportionately affects males and children. Um, not really sure why this distribution pattern uh, reflects that. 
it may be, you know, males and children themselves, impulsivity issues, jumping, diving, horsing around in water, uh, water sports in general. Uh, that's typically a, a male um, type of thing or for children who are just more active in the water anyway, especially in the summertime. Almost all the infections that have occurred, it's been through recreational freshwater exposure, so swimming or diving. Um, there was a case in Arizona, I guess, two children were actually infected at their homes while bathing, and they were able to trace the organism back to an untreated community well water system. So well water as well can be infected, uh, especially in these southern states too, Arizona, you know, it's a desert, so... And then uh, there's actually another case where it was thought to be caused by inhalation of uh, these nagleria cysts. So when it's in its cyst form, it's not in the uh, trophozoite form. Ugh, I have trouble with that word. Uh, it can actually, I guess it's able to get into the, and I would assume that once it's in a more uh, hospital environment, it probably uh, reverts from its cyst form back into the uh, actually pathogenic amoeba form. So... Um, about 300 cases total have been reported uh, in 50 in the last 50 years, or at least at least since the first case was reported in 1965. And I believe there have only been 10, 12, 10 to 12 survivors. So, uh, in the news this past summer, as I said, uh, every summer there's usually at least one or two that you hear about in the news. Uh, there have been two this summer that I was able to find. There was one in Florida. Uh, and there was one in Nebraska, and that was the first uh, in the Nebraska state history. Um, the one case, the one that, the, I think it was a girl, a little girl in Nebraska, she passed away. Uh, the one in Florida, I couldn't find if he had died or not. So, um, but I'm assuming maybe, probably will, not sure. Um, but those aren't reflected in, like I said, I have up until 2001, so, you know, but either way, uh, it's terrible. But extremely rare. So, uh, if you live in the south, if you have kids, if you live somewhere where it's warm and there's fresh water and you have kids, just be aware. Um, there's no real data to suggest that early diagnosis uh, improves mortality rate either. So, I don't know. I guess once you get this, you're kind of screwed. But such is life. And on that, on to our death count. Definitely not going to be as high uh, as my last episode with syphilis. Uh, right now, we're averaging about 2.5 deaths per year from N. Fowleri. Uh, you can multiply that by, let's even go back like 10,000 years, the, the beginning of civilization in Mesopotamia. Uh, if we multiply those 2.5 deaths per year, we get 25,000 deaths. Uh, that equals... 135,417 feet, or 25.6 miles. So, let's see how far we can get to the moon. So the moon, the moon is 238,900 miles away. So we would get approximately 0.00018 of the way to the moon. Not very far at all. Um, Empire State Buildings at 1,454 feet, we could actually stack our debt a total of 93.1 times. So it's 93 Empire State Buildings. Yeah. Uh, if we wanted to wrap our debt around the Earth, uh, circumference of the Earth, we would actually only get around 0 .001 times. So one one thousandth of the way around the Earth. Not overly impressive. Um, like I said, not a deadly microorganism with 
regard to the amount of people, just because it's not found, it's not common. Uh, but with the 97% mortality rate, it is extremely dangerous if you get it, and extremely deadly. Um, I just think it's interesting. Amoebas are weird. Weird little, uh, you know, like I said, bacteria and fungus eating, usually single-cell organisms that kind of slug around and just, you know, they live everywhere. So uh, I thought I'd do a quick little episode on that. Uh, any suggestions anybody has? Like I said, I want to thank all my new listeners. Uh, I got a lot of hits on my last episode. I'm curious to see if those are genuine or if, you know, maybe somebody just bought some bots for me, which was very nice, but uh, I still want to see exactly if this kind of piques anybody. Want to uh, want to also mention that I will be doing an episode with a good friend of mine on Q Fever. I mentioned that last time. Uh, logistically, it's just getting a thing set up. But uh, thank you, everybody. I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, I will uh, be back again in the near future. Remember to stay safe and uh, always wash your hands.